evening everyone. Can I add to the welcome that Philip gave you and thank Philip for leading and also our musicians here this evening. We're going to sing some other things as well. What I'd like to do, this is the beginning of a new series. I want to try and place it in context then read from the particular prophet we're looking at together. Then we'll sing again to get you standing on your feet. It's quite a lot of material this evening and then I'll be speaking at the end. Then different folk are going to lead us in responsive prayer before we conclude uh, this evening. I'm aware that some people come to church who've never been to church before and one of my concerns is that those who come to church regularly make enormous assumptions. So, let me be as simple and as basic as I can right at the beginning then you won't feel embarrassed if you've never been in church or you've never picked up a Bible before. So, first of all, please pick up a Bible, alright? There are Bibles in the pews. You've not brought your own. If you come regularly, can I encourage you to bring your own Bible or if you haven't got one, to get a Bible. The one we use is called the New International Version. But there are lots of different translations of the Bible in English. So I'm not going to assume anything. This is kind of introduction to the Bible for dummies. You know in those yellow books? So if you own the Bible, right at the beginning, if you've got a pew Bible, it's page 5. Or the fifth double page. And you should have a page there that looks a bit like this that says contents and it should have the books of the Old, that's the wrong slide, it should have the books of the Old and the New Testament. Sorry, there you are. Sorry, thank you very much, Steve. Uh, And if you look at that carefully, you'll see under the books of the Old Testament there are 39 books listed. You don't have to count them, I've done it already. And then under the New Testament there are 27 different books. Don't expect to read. Well, that's actually quite good on the screen there. Thank you. Okay, three facts. Obvious fact number one, the Bible is a very long book. All got that? Obvious fact number two, the Old Testament part is much longer than the New Testament part. It's about five times longer. Not so obvious fact number three. What we call the Old Testament is really the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. The word testament an interesting word, it actually means agreement or legal covenant between two parties. And the Old Testament is about the covenant or agreement that God made with the people of Israel in particular. The New Testament is about the agreement that God then extended to people of all nations on earth, including earth. Therefore, Christians believe that the whole of this book, the Bible, it's God's word, whereas Jews would only accept, obviously, the first part, the Old Testament. Okay then, keep the Bible open. Back to the Old Testament page again, and the 39 books that are listed there in order. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, they're listed differently, and I don't have time to tell you how they're listed. If you're really interested, ask me afterwards, and I'll tell you. But this is the normal, conventional way they're listed in our Bibles. Now, 15 of these 39 books are books of the prophets, named after prophets that spoke God's word. They're normally divided into two groups. The major prophets, that's Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and then what are called the minor prophets, the last 12. Now, the reason they're called major and minor is not because they're more important than the major ones, it's simply because they're a lot longer and the minor prophets were a lot shorter. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, the 12 minor prophets are all grouped together in one 
They're called the Book of the Twelve. And the reason for this is that you could get them more or less, all of them, written on one long scroll. Okay, what is a prophet then? Most people think that a prophet is someone who foretells the future, what God is going to do in the future. And while that is true, when you read the books of the prophets, you'll discover that most of what they said was not to do with the future, but to do with the present. The easy way to remember is that a prophet foretells, but he also foretells God's word about the present. So, when we read and study the prophets, we need to keep both of these aspects in mind. We need to know when this particular prophet spoke, the time and situation of the history of Israel that he was around, and as we do, we'll see parallels with our society and the unchanging demands of an unchanging God which challenge us if we claim today to be God's people. We also need to see how the prophets look forward into the future and how much of what they foretold has been fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, and what still remains to be fulfilled when Jesus returns to earth a second time. And that is why studying the Bible, including what to many people are these obscure books in the Old Testament, is of the utmost importance. That's why we call this new series of 12 major lessons from the minor prophets. Everybody's still with me at this point. Just nod your heads and look what you are. Yes? Okay, good. Okay. Now, these 12 minor prophets vary in length from Hosea, which has 14 chapters, and the little prophecy of Obadiah, which only has 21 verses. Of course, the chapters and verses were added much later for our convenience. In the Hebrew and the Christian Bible, the order in which they're listed is what is thought to be the chronological order in which they spoke. So, Hosea, the first one, is the oldest one, and then the nearest in time to it is the last one, Malachi. And today we're going to focus on this one, Hosea, the first one of the twelve, and God willing, over the next weeks, myself, Richard and Colin, will be dealing one at a time with each of the twelve minor prophets. So, turn to page 900 now. You've got a few Bible, and you'll find, you should find on page 900, Hosea. Or in your own Bible, if everyone got that, page 900. A quick whistle-stop tour of history, because we need to try and place where Hosea was when he spoke. Sorry, when Hosea spoke in Israel. Alright? Very quickly, alright? Go back a thousand years before Christ to the first king of Israel, a man named Saul. He reigned about this time. He wasn't a very good king. All the kings coming up are either red or green. Red means bad, green means good, alright? And when he died in battle, he was succeeded by Israel's greatest king, David, he's in green, who reigned for 40 years. His son Solomon then succeeded him and he reigned for 40 years. And under Solomon, the nation of Israel enjoyed its greatest period of prosperity when its borders were expanded to their limits. Map there of that. However, the seeds of destruction were sown 
during Solomon's later years as he compromised his faith. The result was that when Solomon died in 930 BC, and again the dating is much later of course because they didn't know about before and after Christ, alright? This is just the chronological convenience, alright? On his death a disastrous civil war broke out and the nation of Israel was split into two, never to be reunited again. The ten northern tribes of Israel united under their king, it was called Jeroboam, with his capital city in Samaria, city of Samaria, while the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin united under Solomon's son, who was called Rehoboam. Alright? Jeroboam Rehoboam, alright? Hebrew name. And his capital was the existing capital, the city of Jerusalem. So, the two kingdoms of Israel and Judah coexisted side by side for the next 200 years. Bring back to the thing there. And in each kingdom, a succession of kings reigned side by side, one after the other. The biblical record judges each of these kings as to whether they obeyed the word of the Lord or not and did what pleased him. So you'll read in the record of Kings and Chronicles, where the stories are recorded, that this king did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, or he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Now if you look at the screen, you'll see that Israel had a pretty bad record. Every king in Israel for 200 years was a baddie. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, while in Judah you had a kind of mixed bag of bad kings alternating with the occasional good king. That one looks kind of brown from blue rather than green, but never mind, that's okay. Now at last, where does Hosea fit into this? Well, look at the opening verse on page 900. It took me some time to get to it, but here we are. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. In fact, he reigned during all the next six kings after Jeroboam. Didn't mention them because some of them only lasted a week or two before their successor killed them off and the next one came along as a disastrous period. So, Hosea operated in the middle of the 8th century and continued for about 40 years towards the close of the century. And although his message contains references to Judah, his main message is directed to the kingdom of Israel. He often refers to, if you read the book of Hosea, by the name Ephraim, which was the name of the biggest tribe in Israel. Now, this period in history was a time of political success and prosperity, unknown since 200 years ago, since the days of Solomon. However, it was a false dawn. The superpower of the day, called Assyria, was mustering its incredible war machine over in the east and was about to trample through the whole region conquering all the states and kingdoms in its path. The kingdom of Israel thought that they were immune from this because they were worshippers of the Lord and the Lord would protect them. Later in his prophecy Hosea says this of his nation Hosea 7 verse 9 he says foreigners sap his strength but he doesn't realise it his hair is sprinkled with grey but he doesn't notice it's a very telling image if like me your hair's going grey or gone grey imagine that it's still the same colour it was now what can you do when people are in such a state of oblivion about their true desperate condition 
the Lord called Hosea to do something very costly very painful as a living symbol of what was happening in Israel and we read about this in the first three chapters of this book of Hosea one writer calls it part one chapters one to three a parable of life part two the remaining chapters the parable is spelt out in detail that's from the message of Hosea by Derek Kidney. Now, we obviously don't have time, you may be glad to know, to read all 14 chapters. Alright? But what I want you to do is read the first three, and then I'll comment on them in a moment, when we've spent something after this, and we'll look at the rest and try and... This is an incredible task to try and preach on 14 chapters in one shot, alright? But it won't be as long as you think it will be, alright? Now, if you're of a sensitive nature about words and images, then just close your ears, because this is pretty strong stuff, alright? So we're going to read chapters 1 through 3. We've read verse 1. Verse 2. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go... Now let's bow for a moment in prayer. Lord, we echo the words of the song that we've just sung together. We pray you'll have mercy on us individually and corporately. We pray that as we study this prophet together and what he said, what you said through him all those years ago, you will speak to us today and that we might hear and respond to your call of love rather than suffering your judgment. Hear and help us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. If someone is angry with you, does it mean they don't love you? If someone tells you that your behaviour is wrong, does it mean that they don't love you? If someone punishes you for doing wrong, does it mean that they don't love you? Not at all. The obvious opposite of love is hatred. But the far less obvious opposite of love, the far more worrying opposite of love, is indifference. When I don't care what you do, when I shrug my shoulders about your bad behaviour, and when I let you get away with murder and do nothing because it's none of my business and you are none of my business it's then that I don't really love you which may not worry you too much because perhaps you don't love me either and we can go our own way live our separate lives or even in that terribly sad phrase when a marriage breaks down, remain good friends. After all, there are two sides to every relationship, and nobody is perfect. Nobody except God. 
So what does God do about our bad behaviour when we ignore Him and go our own way and we end up suffering the consequences? Does He smile indulgently like a benevolent grandfather and let us carry on down the primrose path that leads to the everlasting bonfire? Or does He just ignore us altogether? Is He indifferent to us and what we do? Now that is a terrifying thought. Douglas Copeland, the Canadian novelist, coined the term Generation X in his books. When asked, what is your greatest fear, said that God exists, but he doesn't care very much for humans. Thankfully, he and we need have no such fears. The God of the Bible, of this book, the one true God, reveals Himself as a person, a passionate person, who interacts with human beings, even with human beings who willfully ignore Him, sun their noses in His face, and go their own way. A God in whom anger and love are not mutually exclusive but in perfect balance and nowhere is this seen more vividly than in the book of Hosea which is why I chose the title I did for this study this evening Hosea where wrath and mercy meet and if you read right through the book of Hosea and I encourage you to do so when you get home this evening you will see that God reveals Himself as a God who cares passionately about the people He loves the most and who treated Him the worst, His own people, Israel. And in Hosea we see Him as not some remote, impassive Buddha. We see Him not as some all-powerful, transcendent Allah or Akbar. But we see Him in the figure of a wronged husband who is betrayed again and again and again by his unfaithful wife, yet he continues to love her. And in order to show this visually, as a real life example, the prophet Hosea is called to act this out in his own personal life, in his own marriage. Hosea's marriage is a picture, therefore, of the relationship of the Lord with his people Israel and the details of that marriage we just read in chapters 1 and 3 which show these two sides of God's relationship with his people two sides of the Lord's response to his people chapter 1 the theme is rejection chapter 3 the theme is reconciliation the first shows his wrath the third chapter shows his mercy and the rest of the prophecy and even these two chapters alternates between the two as you swing from one to the other and so in the time available to us I simply want to look at these two things each of them in turn first of all then the Lord's rejection of his people in chapter 1 the Lord, if you read the verse again in chapter 1 Verse 2, the Lord 
tells Sosius to marry an adulterous wife. Either one who will prove to be, or most people think is most likely already is, a prostitute. So Hosea the, this is incredible stuff, Hosea the prophet marries Gomer the prostitute. It's a terrible demand. And one forbidden by the law. But these are terrible times. And Hosea does as he is told, as the prophets did so often, without question. He marries a woman named Gomer, and she bears him a son, and Hosea is told to name him Jezreel. Now you probably don't think Jezreel means anything. But to the Jew, Jezreel meant terrible bloodshed. It was a massacre that occurred a century before. It's a bit like saying to a modern Jew who has a child, call him Auschwitz. Or saying to an American who has a new baby, how about 9-11 for a name? Gomer next bears a daughter, probably not by Hosea, one of her illicit relationships, who is to be called Loruchama, which means no mercy. And then she has a second son, probably again with another relationship. And the Lord says, call him Lo-Ami, which means in Hebrew, not my people. Now the meaning is absolutely obvious. The nation of Israel, like Gomer, is guilty of spiritual adultery. That is seen in turning to other nations. This is described in detail in the prophecy that follows. Instead of seeking the Lord for protection and help, the nation of Israel, in the midst of these warring superpowers, turns first to Egypt in the south, then tries to make an alliance with Assyria in the east. For example, chapter 7, verse 11, he says, Ephraim, that's the name for Israel, Ephraim is like a dove, easily deceived and senseless, now calling to Egypt, now turning to Assyria. Not only that, the nation of Israel is guilty of adultery in turning to other gods, in particular the Canaanite gods, who had been in the land ever since the Israelites got there, and they never got rid of them. They were called Baals. Interesting that the Hebrew, the word Baal probably means husband. And they offered a heady mix of sex and religion in their worship. And the Israelites were attracted to this as human nature is. Chapter 13, verse 1, When Ephraim spoke, men trembled. He was exalted in Israel, but he became guilty of Baal worship and died. Of course, they've not given up on their old-time religion the worship of the Lord. So the Lord is just one of many that they worship and they still go through the motions. They've got their own priests and their own prophets. But really it's all a sham. And the Lord will never accept such behaviour. For like a jealous husband, he demands the undivided loyalty and love of his wife. He will never share her with other lovers or customers. So what follows is God's judgment. The people of Israel, the Lord says, you can expect bloodshed. Jezreel. You'll be shown no mercy. Lorahama. And you'll be disowned by me because you are lo ami, not my people. Now it's a bad enough thing when the people of Israel discover that these allies and religions let them down and don't satisfy and abuse them. 
and they end up on the scrap heap. But there is something far worse. What is far worse is God's judgment, His punishment of His people, which is fully justified. The Bible describes that response of God as His wrath. God's wrath is His just response to guilty sinners. It has to be His response if He is a holy God. He cannot contradict His own character. Think, for example, this last week, the big fuss because the Yorkshire River Peter Tuckliffe was let out for one day to the moors to see where his father's ashes had been scattered and people said, that man has done such terrible things he shouldn't be let out of prison at all. Now that's inhuman justice. What would, what would the world be like if God had no judgment, no justice? He just turned a blind eye when people did what they liked. God's wrath is his steady, unending opposition to all that is evil. And because God's character never changes, we should fear his wrath also. You see, when we go against God, as all of us do by nature, because we're born with a sinful human nature, we're rebels against God, what happens? We go and seek the satisfaction that God alone offers with other lovers, inverted commas. Maybe real ones. With relationships. With other idols that we put in the place of God. And what happens is that we find that there is no satisfaction in them. They promise so much. And yet you suffer the law of diminishing returns. Now, if you're a human being, you're proving this in your own experience, as I am. Whenever I go against God and seek other idols, instead of putting Him in the first place in my life, But worse than that, we come under God's judgment. For God's wrath is such that He cannot look upon sin and He must deal with it. And should we try to hide behind this oft-suggested argument that the Old Testament here, well that's the Old Testament, it's all about a God of wrath. Turn to the New Testament and Jesus, it's all about a God of love. Really? Read it for yourself. Yes, the New Testament shows God's love in far greater depth than it had ever been seen before because God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. But, His wrath is seen in even deeper judgment when we turn away from that love. That is why our Lord Jesus Christ said those terrible things to His people. He said to them, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for you because you have not believed. Matthew 10, 14 and 15. That is God's wrath. But back to Hosea in Israel. If verse 9 were the end of the story, then it would be a very bleak ending for the people of Israel and for us because none of us would be here this evening. There would be no church, no gospel. But a message of hope follows immediately which shows us that God even in his judgment, has not given up on his people. He's not reneged on his promise. Look at verse 10. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. 
God has not given up on his people. You know where that promise comes from? It's the promise that God made to Abraham, the father of Israel, right at the beginning. That promise that God made. Should be a slide for this thing, I'm sorry. This is God's rejection of his people. But how will this be possible? How can God, who is a God of justice, yet forgive his people? That's the second theme that we see in the second episode in chapter 3. The Lord's reconciliation with his people. We'll see that in chapter 3. Let's turn to chapter 3. I think the slides are getting a little behind. In the second part of Hosea's marriage to Gomer, his wife, we see that Gomer walks out on him and she moves him with one of her lovers. Gomer walks out on Hosea, moves in with a lover. Derek Kidner, it's an excellent commentary if you want a good commentary on Hosea. Bible speaks today. What he writes, she bore him a son. After that she had two more children who were apparently not his. Then she left him. She had made a fool of him. She had also made a fool of herself for her new lover turned out to be as useless and as heartless as herself and was soon his drudge and virtual prisoner. He was rather like the plight of the prodigal son. So what does Hosea do in these circumstances? First he's married this woman, then she's walked out on him. What would you do in those circumstances? Leave her to her just deserts? Wait for her to come to her senses? This is like the prodigal son, but in one respect it's very different because the prodigal son came to his senses and went back home. She stays where she is, either because she cannot or will not leave the situation that she's in. So the Lord tells Hosea, you're to take the initiative. You're to go back and love her again, verse 1. Though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. So once again, Hosea does as he's told. He shows his love, he buys her back for this pitiful price, which is all that she's worth, and he promises to reinstate her as his wife, but she must accept his offer by living with him and remaining faithful to him. Now again, the meaning is obvious to the people of Israel. It's spelled out. Despite the adultery of Israel, the Lord promises to love her, to redeem her, that's to buy her back, to restore her, if she will only listen and accept his offer. And running through little threads in the rest of the prophecy, we see this appeal of the Lord, most beautifully in chapter 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. And so the rest of the book of Hosea alternates between these two things, as the Lord both warns and woos his people. Despite their continued rejection, he will not give them up. He cannot give them up. This beautiful picture, you turn to chapter 11. Almost pathos in the words. It's just the beginning. Here's a picture of a father now rather than a husband. When Israel was a child, I left him. Out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals. They burned incense to images. Incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Here's a father teaching his toddler to walk. And what does the toddler do? Walk away. Taking them by the arms that they didn't realise. It was I who healed them. I led them with cords of kindness. With ties of love I lifted the yoke from their neck. 
bent down to feed them. Then verse 8, he says, How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you in this terrible way? Despite their rejection, God will not give up on his people. It's the theme we thought about this morning when Richard was preaching. He who began a good work in him will complete it without Jesus Christ. So we see God's mercy. Now, while God's wrath is his just response to guilty sinners, God's mercy, in contrast, is his gracious response to undeserving sinners. So here we have these two things God's wrath, God's mercy. How do they meet? How does the story conclude? You may ask, in conclusion, what happened? Did they heed his word when Hosea preached? Did God's people, did God's plans for his people ultimately fail? The short term answer seems to be yes. Towards the end of Hosea's ministry, after those six disastrous kings, one after the other, what Hosea feared and warned happened. In 722 BC, the Assyrian army swept through Israel into the city of Samaria and Israel was no more. In the short term, Israel was destroyed. But that was not the end of the story. For when we turn to the New Testament, we see in the long term, in fact into eternity, God's people are indeed saved. Here are some words written hundreds of years later by the Apostle Peter. Notice, they're written to Gentile Christians living in the Roman province of Asia Minor. Now note the words with what we've read in Hosea, because he's quoting Hosea really. And he says to these Gentiles, these non-Jews, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, notice the word. Once you were not a people. Once you were low ami. But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, you were Lord of Hamas. But now you have received mercy. So how did this happen? How was God's justice satisfied? How did Gentiles get in on the scene? How did they become the fulfilment of the prophecy of Hosea? Well, the wonderful answer is what the Gospel is all about. How was God able to do this? He did it through the death of His Son, Jesus. Earlier in 1 Peter, further back in chapter 1, He says to these Christians, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, like Hosea paid to get his wife back, that you were redeemed, bought back, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. How was God able to do this without compromising his integrity, compromising his justice? Well, if you look again in the New Testament, book of Romans chapter 3, I think students have been studying this in their lunches, probably last term this probably happened. But what it says in chapter 3, God presented him, that's Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement. The footnote in the NIV I put there says, as the one who would turn aside his wrath 
taking away sin. Through faith in his blood, he did this, why? To demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just, consistent with his character, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The Gospel is all about God's wrath and God's mercy meeting in the cross of Jesus. The cross is the place where wrath and mercy meet. Because God's justice was fully satisfied in the death of His Son, who was sinless, the Lamb of God. So that through Jesus, God's justice is satisfied, His love is seen to such a great extent, that through Christ, we can be forgiven. We can be included in God's family. We can be part of His people. The New Testament has this wonderful picture that the church is the bride of Christ. Passionate picture. That God loves His church. Gave His Son to redeem His church. And if you are a Christian, you are the fulfilment of the prophecy of Hosea. But as Hosea concludes in his final chapter, we have to respond to the Lord's passionate appeal. He is seeking us out. Maybe this evening you're not a Christian at all. And God is seeking you out. And can I say this? The time to worry is when it seems as though God doesn't speak to you at all and you don't, He doesn't seem to care at all. The time to be thankful is maybe this evening your conscience is hurting you. God is speaking to you about the way that you've lived your life and rebelled against Him and gone your own way. Be thankful. That's not because God hates you. It's because God loves you. Maybe you're a Christian this evening and you've just been living your life your own way. You used to walk closely with the Lord like Israel but now you've turned your back and you've sought other idols, other relationships, other things that have come into your life that have taken first place and they're not satisfying you. They're failing you. They're kicking you when you're down. And this evening the Lord is pleading with you and saying, I love you. You're mine. You've been bought with a price and He is seeking to woo you and to win you back. Maybe you're suffering the consequences of your sin in your body, in your family, in your studies, in your work, in your relationships. Be thankful. This is God's severe mercy. He's doing it because He loves you and because if nothing else will wake you up, this may do. Most people will not return to the Lord through prosperity. God usually has to use adversity to wake us up and bring us back to Himself. And if God has been doing that in your life, then all I can say to you is be enormously thankful. Because it's a sign that He loves you. But if you're sitting there this evening and you're just absolutely blocked on thinking, how much longer is it going to go on? I need to get home and watch the telly. And it just goes over your head and you remember the times you used to come to church and you were challenged and you were moved and nothing happens now. Be careful. You're on dangerous ground. But if God is speaking to you, you need to respond. The book of, nearly finished, the book of Hosea turns to a response in the last chapter. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Chapter 14, verse 1. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you. Return to the Lord. You have to come to the Lord this evening. If God is speaking to you, you need to take words with you. Because it's a relationship. When God speaks, you have to speak back. You have to say something. 
might not need to say it out loud, but you need in your mind to speak to God and say, Lord, that's right. I'm sorry. I've gone my own way. Return to the Lord and say to Him, forgive all our sins. Receive us graciously that we may offer you the fruit of our lips. Now because of Jesus and what He did on the cross, God will and can forgive your sins at the same time preserving His justice. Because the wrath that you deserve has been taken by Christ and your sin has been forgiven and turned aside the wrath of God. Only Jesus can do that and bring you back into that right relationship with God. Either for the first time or the twenty-first time. God is speaking to you. This alone is the way of wisdom. How does the book finish? Chapter 14, verse 9. Who is wise? He will realize these things. Who is discerning? He will understand them. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them. But the rebellious stumble in them. And I simply ask you this evening, which way are you travelling? Where is your life going? Where are you heading? This is the word of the Lord through Hosea. This is the word of the Lord that has been fulfilled in Jesus. Because in Him alone, God's wrath, God's mercy, me. Now we're going to focus on that. And then Alan, Helen Lamb are going to lead us in prayer as a response to that. Let's sing together.